1: Is David Pio? Thanks for being on the show, David. Thanks, Whitney. David is a broker associate and investment consultant, co-founder at BG Asset Management, certified commercial investment member instructor, and specializes in asset portfolio reallocation and repositioning, including asset planning strategies, 1031 tax deferred exchanges, and other complex investment structures. Well, David, that you know we all have to be somewhat familiar with or need to be, right? But it's unfortunate that a lot of times people make big decisions about selling or buying or at times when they shouldn't. And I'm looking forward to getting into that a little bit today with you, but tell the listeners a little more about who you are, maybe where you're located and your focus right now in the industry.
0: Yeah. So I'm located in the San Francisco Bay area. I've been in real estate for 14 years. I got in during the worst plausible time, right? Just as the great recession was happening. So that was fun to say the least. Kind of got started from there, used some old sales techniques to kind of know how to work the people I knew well. And at this time, you know, in the San Francisco Bay Area, you can buy, you know, units at 50 grand a pop, you know, 50 grand a door, which is insane. And a lot of people at that time didn't trust the stock market. So they were able to take a lot of their assets out of the stocks, minimal tax consequences and put into real estate. And it's one of those kind of snowballing effects where, you know, you help one client they tend to come back within a couple of years years timeframe. And then they, of course they have friends and family and they have friends and family kind of snowballs and snowballs from there. 80 plus percent of what I do is on any given year about, you know, apartment deals. The other 20%, 15 plus percent tends to be in the industrial sector, mainly because my family's background, they've been in the trucking industry since before I was born. So I kind of grew up with it. So it's kind of been the second extension of me. I do random houses locally for family, friends, since I did that for my first year or so, and it's just a matter of memorizing forms in California. And yeah, that's kind of the gist of it. I do a random one-off deals here and there, a few triple net deals here and there. And last year, for some reason, I happened to have two sizable church deals. So that was fun to learn all the tax laws when it comes to churches and nonprofits, but that's the general gist of things.
1: Interesting. Okay, you know, I wanted to ask you. You said you got in during the Great Recession, or I assume you know around two thousand and eight. And was that right before? And then you know, it went way down for you, or were you like in at the right time where you could catch it on the way up?
0: I got my license in oh six, but I didn't actually start until oh seven. And thank God, at that time I was twenty three, I believe, and I still lived at home, and I had a decent amount of money in the savings account when I quit my old job and started real estate full time. So my first year, I actually made negative money. I never knew you could do that, but, you know, it tends to happen. And then the year after that, I got lucky with a handful of deals. Some people knew that I had been doing business for two years. They didn't really know or trust anyone. And I kind of snowballed since then. And every year, for the most part, it's kind of been a gradual increase, increase, you know, family, friends of family, friends of friends, clients that find out about you through referrals and things like that.
1: Nice. So I was going to ask you if everything went down, you know, why did you stay in? You know, I did
0: pretty decent my second year and I was like, all right, I can do this. And especially knowing since people, you know, this is when everyone was struggling. I remember I did a price drop on a property that was referred to me from LA or something like that. And people were like, oh my God, you did a price drop. You're going to kill all the comps. And I went, they're not going to sell it at this price. What does it matter? So it was a very interesting time.
1: You mentioned uh, you made negative money just for our our listeners that don't understand what you're talking about. what, What do you mean? Oh, I
0: made $0 and then I still had expenses. So I had to literally pay for things and had money going out. And of course, you know, in real estate, you're an independent broker. So you get to write that stuff off. So I literally showed negative income on my
1: taxes. Nice. Nice. Uh, So you were hooked then, right? Oh, yeah. Tell me about it. (laughs) So. You know, it's interesting, like in your business, I mean, whether you're on the active side, like myself, whether you're a broker, it's it's so important that you understand some of the tax implications, right? And when you're speaking with sellers and and things like that, so that you can help explain some of those implications when they're making these decisions. And it sounds like, you know, you've really become, you know, an expert in, in some of these things. So I think you've been able to help some sellers in the process. Why don't we get into maybe an example that you've had recently, and let's just jump in a little bit to, you know, how you were able to help this seller, thinking through some of these tax implications that were happening or what's going to happen?
0: Yeah, sure. So I always tell people I'm not an accountant. I'm not a lawyer, but I'm one of those weird nerdy people that I like to catch up on what's going on with the accounting laws, like the cares act and you know, the new stuff they're passing now, which they're kind of passing almost on a weekly basis with everything that's going on with the coronavirus. And then in addition to that, I'm one of those weird people that I like to go to the bar association and listen to people duke it out. I remember one of the most interesting ones was listening to a landlord attorney and a tenant attorney for retail debate like three line items for about four hours. And you start to learn all these nuanced things from each side and perspective. So when you start to see lease clauses, you start to see how the attorneys see it and the extremes that it could be taken into. But the thing I do is I like to try to take that knowledge and bring it in. Most real estate deals I feel like the short-sighted thing is a lot of real estate deals are going to be, you know, you sell and you buy. Maybe the most complex thing is you do a 1031 exchange. There's literally been times where i told people not to sell. Case in point, the one we were briefly talking about before we went on air is, had one of my, had a potential client that I knew. He was referred to me by a long-term client that I had been done eight, nine, 10 deals with. They were very close friends, almost family, but not quite. They had been neighbors for 20 plus years. And I visited his house. And as we're walking in, I, you know, the neighbor had kind of gave me a little bit of a summary and a heads up on things. And he mentioned, I asked him, how long does this guy own this property? He said, Oh, like 30, 35 years. And as we were walking through the door, I said, oh, I'm going to talk myself out of a deal. Just watch, Walked to this guy's house, apartment building located in the East Bay. And he's literally got my competitor's listing agreement, not signed, but filled out on his desk. And the guy's in his late 70s, super sharp watching Jeopardy. And we start talking. And in summary, he explains to me that he's the investor of the family. His kids aren't. His kids are all older. They're in their 50s and 60s. But one's a teacher. One's They don't do investments. That's his thing. And he didn't want to overburden them by passing away because he was in his late 70s and leaving them with the issues. And long story short, I told him the price was about a million. My competitor said, give or take $25,000. We're in the same ballpark. And I said, what are you going to do? Are you going to 1031 exchange it? No, it's too much work. It's I don't want to burden them. I said, do you understand your tax bill with federal and state and appreciation recapture is going to be, the rough number was about 350 grand. So you sell for a million, you walk away with 650. And he goes, I didn't know all these taxes were going to come into play, blah, blah, blah. And I said, can I give you an alternative suggestion? He goes, yeah. And I said, have someone manage it for you and wait till you die. And he looks at me and I go, I know it's morbid, but, and I explained to him the estate tax law, where in summary, when you pass away and your kids inherit your property, your stocks, things like that, it gets reassessed as if they had purchased it for the value that the day you passed. And I gave them a quick example, like an Apple stock that you buy for a dollar, you sell at a hundred, you pay $65 in taxes. But if you pass away and it goes to your kids, it's as if your kids bought it at a hundred dollars they're not, they're not going to pay at any profit unless it sells above $100. And he looks at me and he goes, that's a really good idea. I never thought about that. How do you get paid? And I said, well, normally I would bill you $300 an hour, but I'm not going to do that for two hours of my time. Hopefully your kids call me when you die. And I go, I know it's morbid, but any references, I'll be more than happy to help. And sure enough, about four or five years later, the guy passed away. I was invited to the funeral. I was one of I don't know, probably about 50 people. It was a relatively small funeral. And, you know, I basically hung out with a neighbor and one of his nephews that I knew just a little bit that I had met in the last couple of years. And they said, hey, you should go introduce yourself to the kids who were in their, again, 50s or 60s at this point. And I went there and one of the daughters recognized me and she goes, the lawyer gave me your card. We know exactly who you are. We'll call you when all this stuff is done. And sure enough, they sold the property. They paid zero taxes you know, between me and the attorney and the accountant, we kind of had everything on the same thing. And it's one of those things where I could have very easily just sold the deal and been done. And a lot of brokers, I feel, look at that point. I like to look at things a little more nuanced because that's how you solidify business. When they're attorneys and they're accountants who they pay, you know, have degrees on the wall and they pay $500,000 an hour, say, yeah, the quote unquote dumb brokers, right? Listen to this person. That's, you kind of solidify your client at that point.
1: Well, I feel like you had a long-term, you know, just a long range in mind there. You know, you added so much value, literally, to them that now I'm sure, you know, you're probably the first person they think of if somebody, if they meet a friend even that says, oh, I am I got a piece of property I'm wanting to sell.
0: Yeah, yeah. And apparently the guy didn't have his trust in order. He had a will, but that was about it. And we talked about probate and how trust helped, you know, kind of sidestep that for lack of a better expression. And, you know, about two weeks later, the neighbor... My original client called me, asked for two references of attorneys, and I gave them both that I had in the Bay Area. And I didn't know it was for that gentleman. And the guy's net worth ended up being six, seven, eight times more than what I thought it was, even though he lived in a relatively modest house. So, I mean, I didn't just save him the taxes and the family of the taxes on the asset when they inherited it. It was on other things. I I had no clue. So that one discussion led to them saving Significantly, much more on other assets that I didn't even know existed because I didn't know the whole story
1: wow, David, how did you educate yourself about the tax side of this? I mean a lot of people I feel like whether you're a broker or you're an active syndicator like myself i mean you you spend so much time learning so much about investing in commercial real estate, but we don't always understand the tax side or the implications right or you know how did you educate yourself?
0: I like to think I'm smart, but mainly just because I borrow stuff from everyone else, I'm definitely no genius i ask a ton of questions. And my questions always have more questions. I've never been the type of person that gets scared to ask, you know, the old saying, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil kind of a thing. So there's been tons of situations where, you know, a lot of my fundamentals came from CCIM, which, you know, C C M teaches a lot about depreciation and how that works and capital gains and basis and that kind of thing. And it takes a couple of classes and a significant amount of time for in working on the spreadsheets. But as you put it in practice, that's an amazing foundation in the real estate world. I, I don't know how taxes works when it comes to businesses or employee deductions and things like that because it's not my world. But that was a great fundamental thing. And from then, you start hearing random terms or you sh- start seeing random speakers talk about these additional nuanced tricks of the trade like QPERT or these way that these wealth funds work. And it's a matter of, you know, a going online and doing as much research as you can, and you get a lot of basic fundamental knowledge about it, and when it may be applicable. But I always have more questions, and it literally comes to the point where I call the people that kind of introduced it a little bit, or I just call people and say, "Hey, look, I, I'll pay you whatever you charge for two hours of your time. I've got thirty-five nuanced questions, and it usually builds into like sixty or seventy nuanced questions." Sure. But you know, I take notes and things like that. And I don't have them all memorized, but I tend to keep things very organized. And the more you practice it, the more it works. Case in point, I had, I mentioned I sold two churches in ah, a year, which was a bit ah. random. One of the churches I sold, I knew a significant amount of the questions, but the owner kept having more questions. He had three, four basic questions, which I had to go research, which led me to have another 10 more questions. So I ended up calling the State Board of Equalizations that deals with tax implications with the churches. And from that, I learned a ton of knowledge. Literally nine months later, I went up for a listing appointment on an $8 million deal for a Hindu temple in the Bay Area. And the reason I got it over the other broker, which is, you know, a big national brand, was because they had, it was a nonprofit group, but they had very knowledgeable people that were accountants, engineers. One guy had owned and sold, I think, three or four businesses that he built from the ground up out in Silicon Valley, very successful people. But real estate just wasn't their forte, but they definitely weren't, you know, they knew a lot of conceptual stuff from other parts of their trade. And they had questions for about an hour, hour and a half. And because I had already learned that knowledge literally nine months before on a much smaller church deal, I was able to take literally those answers and relay it over to them. And sure enough, I got the listing and ended up selling it for a little more than $8 million with some creative financing in mind. So wow. it's, it's things like that, that you learn the basic and you kind of just keep, you know, intellectual curiosity is just as strong as motivation and may help you go a long way in your business.
1: Awesome, yeah. You're adding value, and in return, you're you're gaining value as well, no doubt about it, from your experience and and the time that you've invested to learn these things. But tell me a little bit about the the CCIM designation, and we I've had numerous people on the show who have that. However, I just love your opinion. You know, for the listeners who are thinking about, you know, should I pursue that or not? I just wonder, like, who do you think really is best suited to pursue that? Or maybe there's people who have it. You think, well, why in the world did you go? Go after that.
0: Sure, so I found out by CCM by accident. One of the best pieces of advice when I first got starting into this business from my broker was you know, when you start off, take as many classes as you can because as you continue your career, it's gonna be harder and harder to find time. Great piece of advice, never forget that. And I still try to do it even now that times when I'm super slammed. So you have the realtor umbrella. If anyone ever gets the chance to go to Chicago, they have literally the realtor building and a lot of the realtor designations are in each floor. So Iram, which is basically the top designation for property managers, takes up a floor. CCIM takes up another floor. SIOR, which is for kind of like the good old boys club for the office and industrial group, is another floor, so on and so forth. And CCIM is basically four main classes with basically a fifth class. It's a bunch of nuanced elective courses, but it's four four four-day classes. So it's class one, that's four days, class two, that's four days. And you have to usually travel around the country to do them. And then at the end, in addition to taking wow. the classes, you have to do a portfolio showing that you not only have the knowledge, but you actually put it into practice. And it's for anyone, bankers, brokers, investors, people that do site selection. I actually met a guy that did site selection for all the West Coast McDonald's for the Western three or four states, which is amazing to have them in a class. You meet some very unique people. In summary, how I would recommend some of the classes is, and I remember someone told me this, and that's still the best example is, CCIM is basically a one or two semester MBA class crushed into four days and applicable to real estate. No theory, just this is actually how it works. And the guy that told me this was someone that had just graduated from Haas at Berkeley, which is one of the top, give or take three, four, five business schools in the country. And he goes, I learned more in one class than I did in one or two semesters, and it's applicable to real estate. They give you a great fundamental knowledge on taxes. Some of the other classes go into demographics, you know, and financial analysis. Anyone that's thinking about getting into real estate or investing period should take at least the first class. That's what I always tell people, take the first class, because I feel like that should be something that everyone knows, just like how to change your oil or pay your taxes or, you know. <laughs> Balance your books, kind of a thing. It's one of those fundamental things about investing that everyone should take. And then, if you like real estate and you want to keep pursuing real estate in the commercial world, then you can take the other ones. But if you're a residential broker, an investor, take the first one. I've had people ask me if they should read books, if they should take the first class. The way that they teach and the way that the, it's the big, large groups like CBRE, Jones Ling LaSalle don't teach the basics of commercial real estate investing because CSAM is, for lack of a better expression, perfected it, and they, they don't see the reason to reinvent the wheel. So it's very common that you get a lot of these big brokers from the big brokerage houses that come in and learn, and then they go pursue further skills inside CBRE, Marks and Millichap, Jones Sang LaSalle. But that's kind of the thing that everyone just sends their brokers to, to kind of get the fundamental training on how a lot of this analysis works.
1: Sure. So what about you, know, you as a broker, if you're working with uh, operators who are, you know, obviously wanting deal flow and looking at deals that you have for sale, you know, how does that work? As far as you know, one that maybe has, it'll say they're on an even slate. You don't know either one of them yet, but one has that designation and the other one doesn't. What's your expectation then?
0: It's almost like an even understanding, right? If you meet someone and the first time you talk to them, it comes out somehow that they went to UC Berkeley or Stanford or MIT. It doesn't mean they're the smartest person in the world. doesn't mean they're a genius. doesn't mean that they're a nice person or a good person. But at least you have a fundamental thing of, you went to MIT. At least I know you have this level of competence and intelligence to graduate from MIT or graduate from Harvard or graduate from Stanford. It's the real estate version of that. It doesn't mean you're a genius. doesn't mean you're a pleasure to work with. It means there's at least a <laughs> fundamental baseline of foundation where at least you can, okay, I don't have to build up to here. At least I know it can start from this level and it can only go up that's the best way I would compare it.
1: That's great. That's great, David. I've just wondered that myself because I've known numerous people. We have numerous guests with that designation, but we haven't really talked about it in depth. But just a few final questions. Uh, What's a way you've recently improved your business that we could apply to ours? When it comes to,
0: in the sense of a broker, the one thing is always prospect in good times and bad, even though it's tedious and everybody hates it. know whether it's warm calls to people you know just to keep in touch especially in a time like now where everyone's kind of by force sitting in their house in most instances i try to make it a point to call five plus people a day do i get that way no but you'd be surprised what you find out just from family and friends and things like that like oh they no longer live here they moved to another country they live in this city this is what's going on with their life they have kids especially weird if you haven't talked to them in, you know, one, two, three years, but if the relationship's there, it's there. And if it's not, at least you'll know. It's not a, you know, Hey, I'll see you in a grocery store and say hello. And then it's going to be awkward forever. So that's got to me deals. I still send people email blasts. That's super cheap. And just being present on social media, whether it's your personal social media, or if you have a business one, I had a business social media. And except for my YouTube, for the most part, it just nothing ever came to fruition, even after long-term. Whereas my personal social media, people know what I do. I don't talk about it all the time. It comes up sporadically, but those sporadic moments where it comes up, I will almost always have someone send me an inquiry of, even if it's just a matter of, hey, I've got this situation, can you help? And again, it's one of those things where I'm pretty good on turning one deal into two or three because I look further down that line Mm -hmm. than just the sell and the purchase kind of a thing.
1: Wow. Great advice. What's the number one thing that's contributed to your success? I'm really good at keeping in contact with people, even when it has nothing to do with
0: sales. I've always been good about being old school and calling people on their birthdays. I don't just send a random text message. I'm pretty good about responding to text messages in a timely manner. You know, I'm not one of those people that has a million of those little red dots on my iPhone where I need to respond to 300 people. I I, I can't be like that. I get many ADD in that sense, but I'm pretty responsive. People appreciate that in the business life and personal life. And then like we started off saying, it's it's a snowball effect. So in the beginning, you start small, you do two, three, four deals. But as time goes, it gradually starts to increase. And as people see that you're doing volume, one of the problems I see is some people think maybe you get too big. So I've been doing this 14 years and people think that, oh, you won't do my small little deal that's, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars because you always, you know, every time I, you do mention it, you do these large deals. I see it on your website. I go, no, 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 I'll do small deals, medium, large, I don't care, right? I'm not going to help you buy a house for $100,000 in Alabama because it's not my market, not my thing, but I'll find someone for you. So I always try to take care of people, but just keeping in contact with people, I think it's definitely been my best asset for sure.
1: Is there a way that you track that or a tool that you use to keep up with that? You know, I
0: literally got in a CRM a year ago, and I have yet to use it, but my assistant's about to start using it because I got my assistant about six months ago that's wrapping up doing all my marketing now. No, it's just been, like I said, they've all been personal friends, people I know. I don't really call random people. You know, it tends to be more people I know, and then it tends to kind of snowball from there. Soon, or recently, I should say, the last literally pre-corona, about for like two weeks, I was starting to make cold calls. So that was new because i have probably done before then like nine cold calls my whole life and they were somewhat targeted. But it's one of those things that I know I got to start getting in the habit of. And it's, again, uh, my thing has kind of always been the email blasts and social media and YouTube. Um, that's kind of been my deal flow. I'm just generally keeping contact with people by whatever method they, you know, works for them.
1: And how do you like to give back? I love to teach. I feel one of my strengths
0: is I feel like I'm really good at explaining a complex concept and kind of making it really simple to a layman, regardless of what your background is, whether it's cars or whatever, I feel like I can change that relationship, whatever nuanced thing that works for you and clicks in your head. And I feel like that's always been one of my strengths. I remember trying to learn things about electricity and I read up on it and I watched a million YouTube videos and just never clicked. And finally one, one guy sat with me and he explained it to me the same way they all do on, you know, online two, three times. And finally, by the third time he goes... I got a good way to explain it to me. And he gave me a little bit different nuanced version and it all clicked. And I went, now I get it. Right. And it's that, that light bulb when you explain to people and then later on, you know, the same appreciation I get when I help my clients later on that, oh, you know, I started off when I started with a little condo and now I've got, you know, 10 units under my belt and my house and all my rent is, my mortgage is almost entirely subsidized by my investments and I can just go quit my job whenever I want that's very satisfying to me. The same way if someone can say, Hey, you did this for my career. I started here, but you taught me how to kind of go through this path and you've helped me with random questions along the way. You know, now I'm here on my career and it's happened where even some people get close to where I'm at and I'm like, wow, it's impressive. Like I'm not mad, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So um, awesome. I really enjoy teaching for sure.
1: Awesome, David. we well, appreciate how you've given back today to the listeners and myself and just appreciate your time. Tell them how they can get in touch with you and learn more about you.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, my website is iliveinthebayarea.com. Nuanced to say, I do stuff all around the country, although the Bay Area is kind of my stomping grounds in San Francisco Bay Area. You can easily Google me by my name, David Pio, or my phone number is 510-815-2000.
1: Don't go yet. Thank you for listening to today's episode.